You're listening to the Grassroots Church Podcast. We're a Jesus-centered community in Thunder Bay, Ontario. You can learn how to participate more by going to our website at grassroots.church. So good morning, and, uh, and welcome again this morning. Um, last week, we uh, began uh, the fifth marker of, a new, of markers, five markers of a new reformation, which if you're visiting with us this morning... Uh, you'll probably be like, what on earth is that all about? I apologize. You're going to have to go through and listen to all of the podcasts, follow us on Facebook, read all about it. But this is all part of uh, the Jesus Collective Network, which Grassroots Church has become a member of. And five sort of pillars of that network uh, we've been looking through, uh, looking at over the last couple of uh, months, a couple of weeks maybe. Anyway, we are uh, in the fifth and final marker. And uh, this one's a doozy. Because we're talking about how do we learn to disagree in a better way. Um, and so last week we uh, started this conversation. Today we're going to begin again. Uh, we're going to carry it on. And then next week we will have a discussion about this. And I am sure there will be many challenges and questions and concerns that you maybe have about this, this marker and some of the finer points within it, which I think is wonderful. And I invite you to come next Sunday as we converse about those things. Um, so all of these markers are really um, in response to this, this sense that the church, the capital C church, has um, kind of gotten off course over the last couple hundred years, I suppose, since the Reformation. And every 500 years, this this idea that uh, the, the church historically has had to recalibrate has had to kind of reconfigure and figure out, like, okay, where have we started to get this wrong as the church? And, um, and so one area is this idea of not really knowing how to get along. <laughs> you know, we are, I think I mentioned last week, we're at 47,000 denominations within Christianity today, within Protestant wing of Christianity. Uh, so 47,000 denominations which have formed in the past 500 years. Uh, And if you were to break that down, that looks essentially like every time there's a disagreement that's deemed important enough, there is a church split. And another church starts, another denomination starts, and then that goes along for a while, and then then there's, you know, another issue or another theological point, another sort of ritual or practice or something that's deemed so essential that the church can no longer uh, stay together, and therefore there's another split. And another splinter, and another fracture, and so, um, you know, this the Jesus Collective, this 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 uh, movement has, has said, like, look, this this is not the way the church should be, right? Like, yeah, we get that there's going to be divisions to some degree, there's going to be diversity, but this is not the unity that Jesus prayed about in John 17. So, how can we recalibrate? How can we reconfigure? Look at this stuff anew, and tr- and practice a different, a practice a, a new way. And I say new in quotations because it's not really new, but practice a way of disagreeing that doesn't cause another 50,000 denominations to be formed in the next couple hundred years, right? Like this is just kind of ludicrous, the direction, the the trajectory we're on as the church. And so that's what uh, this is all about. And, you know, I I think, and and I think the the signs are everywhere that we are in a particular particularly difficult time in our culture as uh, in terms of learning to agree and, and to get along because there are so many things, so many factors, so many variables that are causing those splits. We have media that is so 
keen on polarizing us and, and, and having you know a camp over here versus a camp over here. We have social media algorithms that are causing um, you know, us to, to, to fall into echo chambers and to, to hear the things we want to hear that support our views and our ideologies over and over and over again to reinforce that stuff. We have the media, we have politics, and then we have religion itself. And I would say that religion, and I said this last week, religion, religion people who are religious are, are struggle probably the most in terms of figuring out how do we get along better because at the end of the day, we get to play the God card don't we? And when we play the God card, it kind of trumps everything else. Because if I believe that God is on my side, good luck trying to convince me to get along with you when you think something diametrically different than me. And so that is the challenge that's before us as the church. And, um, and so Last week, we began this conversation talking about uh, Mark Baker's book, which is A Centered Set Church. And uh, like I said, I hope we're going to get into this in the next couple of months as a church. We're going to dive deeper into it. There's a video series that's going to help us walk through some of this stuff. Um, but Mark used uh, some help from math talking about um, various sets. I don't understand math, so I won't pretend to even carry on that line. Um, but he uses these diagrams that really helped. And he talked about bounded set churches uh, versus fuzzy set churches as this sort of continuum. And, and then he said, uh, <clears throat> well, and then there's centered set churches. But all of us tend to be on this um, bounded set, fuzzy set continuum to some degree. And, and what we mean by bounded set is uh, we set up these lines, right? We set up these uh, parameters around us that define who's in and define who's out. And it's really, really hard to transcend that because that's all we've ever known as humans, especially as Christians. Um, we can't help but define ourselves by those around us. We find our identity, our very sense of self, in how we define ourselves in relationship to other people who either agree with us or who don't agree with us. Which is to say we draw these lines and these boundaries all around us in order to figure out our place in this world. And this is the way the world works. This is how we in the church work. It's what we've been born into. And the church has been morphed into this over time, over many generations. It's not how it's supposed to be, but it's how it's turned out, which is why we're discussing this need for recalibration. Um, and so that's sort of the one paradigm. And then uh, Mark talks about this other paradigm that he invites us into and that he sort of demonstrates throughout this book and that we'll get into in time, um, how Jesus invites us to a different paradigm altogether. And he calls this the centered set, uh, a centered set church or centered set way. And it kind of is not on this continuum at all. It's a different way of thinking about disagreeing altogether. Um, and so the question he asks is, as followers of Jesus, how can we overcome this continuum of bounded set, fuzzy set? And I didn't explain what fuzzy set. Fuzzy set is the opposite end. So if boundary is we put all these lines in, in, um, you know, around us to define who's in and who's out, fuzzy is a response to that and says, hey, all these lines, this is causing judgment. This is causing self-righteousness. Let's just get rid of the lines. You know, let's totally transcend the lines. And it doesn't matter what you believe. And it doesn't matter 
how you live your life, whatever, let's just be and let be, which is sort of the ethic of our day, isn't it? Right? And, and sort of a response to the way our society has gone over the last couple hundred years, the, the way that the world works today, the way that the West works today is let everyone just do as they do and don't hurt anyone else and we'll all get along. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem to be working very well either. And it's certainly not working in the church. And so that's, buzz, that's uh, bounded, that's fuzzy. Um, and so I think one of the best ways to start thinking about uh, this centered set paradigm is through metaphors and stories, rather, uh, rather than being prescriptive and saying like, this is what it means to be a centered set church, or this is what it doesn't mean. Uh, I think some of the ideas are best conveyed through metaphor. Um, and so I've got two sort of stories, and one of them I shared this week in uh, the newsletter, but it really, I think, resonated. A lot of people actually sent me messages saying, hey, okay, a lot of people, a few people, sent me messages saying, hey, th that was a really helpful metaphor. Thanks for, thanks for kind of sharing that. So I thought I'd share that one first this morning. And then there's another one that I think uh, we'll look to throughout today's message as well. The first, um, he says, so boundaries at churches are likened to a soccer team in a league. There are uniforms that distinguish uh, one team from another. Um, if you were to play on a soccer team in a league, you might have to try out. Some of the Peace Boys know what that's about. Trying out for a soccer team to get cut, to get accepted. There's this boundary that's set there. And then there are official uh, registration fees you might have to play. To, uh, you might have to pay. And all of those things establish you as part of this team. Right? So that's sort of the boundary idea. Um, and then this... Uh, sorry. And then fuzzy churches would be like a group of people gathering at a park to play pickup games. The same people might gather week after week, but there are no hard and fast rules about who is welcome or who is excluded. Anyone can play. Sometimes they play soccer. Sometimes they might play ultimate frisbee. Uh, one week you might show up and there's volleyball nets set up and it looks like, oh, today we're gonna play volleyball, okay. And there's no real like hard and fast understanding of what we're here for or what we're going to do. Um, and so, the, that's boundary, that's, that's fuzzy. And then centered set looks at it totally different. It says, um, centered set is as if a group of people agreed to gather at the park at 3 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon with the intent of playing soccer. Everyone's invited, right? Everyone can come. Your skill doesn't matter. There's no, there's no line that you have to cross to be a participant in this. You don't have to pay a fee. You don't have to wear a uniform. Um, all these things are secondary or tertiary or not really that important. The focus is that we're going to get together on Saturday at 3 p.m. and we are going to play soccer. So everyone's invited. Now, some who show up at soccer might not be that great. And some might be peace boys. I don't know. But it doesn't matter. Your ability to play soccer is not part of the equation that determines whether you get to play or not. You're invited to play and you're welcome to play. Does that help a bit? Now, just because everyone is invited does not mean that everyone gets to be part of this group. And here's why. Because if someone picks up the ball and starts running with it in the middle of the soccer game, we would be like, stop! We're not playing rugby. We're playing soccer, right? And so, Hopefully, you can have a conversation with that individual. You can kind of bring them in and say, actually, these are the rules of soccer. We don't put our hands on the ball. And they might say, sure, okay. But they might insist that they want to play rugby. And so they might keep on picking up the ball. What do you do in that situation? 
In that situation, you say, listen, maybe next week we'll play rugby or you know, there's a rugby team or rugby crew down the street, they're doing that. And you're, you know, you're more than likely invited to go join them. But here we want to play soccer. And so there's this clarity, there's this uh, conversation that might have to happen, this clarification that might have to happen with that individual to say like, listen, if you're part of this Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m. gathering to play soccer, we're here to, get, we're here to play soccer. And I really think that metaphor helps explain this whole boundary, fuzzy, centered set uh, paradigm. And so that was, um, that was one. And, and there's just something that kind of captured me as I read this book that uh, really, and it's just a simple line. It says this, we are radically inclusive. Everyone's invited. Absolutely everyone. There are no lines that determine who's not invited. But listen, that does not mean we are radically tolerant and you can just do whatever you want. Does that make sense? We are radically inclusive, but we are not radically tolerant. Because radical tolerance just degenerates into chaos. And honestly, then you don't have any purpose and you don't get anything done. So the second metaphor, and again, this also comes from the book, um, but it's a, a beautiful, beautiful picture um, of understanding this again, this paradigm. And, and he says this, in the dry Australian outback... It's too expensive for ranchers to build and maintain fences that will, that will contain cattle on their huge properties. So rather than building fences, these farmers dig wells. And though their cattle will roam, they will not roam far because they must keep returning to the well to drink water. It's such a simple but a profound picture, isn't it? Is grassroots church consumed with presenting to the world an irresistible Jesus such that we don't have to worry about fences, about those boundaries, about that question, who's in, who's out? Because people are drawn to the Jesus, to this living water that is life-giving. That's an interesting way of looking at it and a, and a good question. So when Jesus calls his disciples, he says follow me, not convert to this religion that I'm starting. He just wants us to follow him. And everyone, if you look at all the encounters that Jesus has in the New Testament, um, from the Roman centurion to the woman at the well, uh, to Zacchaeus, to, to Pilate himself, he offers himself to them. He's offering himself, not a system of belief, not a religion. And that's what I think our call is as followers of Jesus as well, is to offer those who inquire Jesus. And, you know, Jesus was gentle with their wrong beliefs and their wrong behaviors. And he makes himself a friend to them. And Jesus knew that joining the herd would not save them or help them. So instead of building fences and asking them to stay within these boundaries, he introduces them to himself, this spring of water welling up to eternal life, the scriptures say. And he trusts that once they taste that water, they will keep coming back to it. And he trusts that the rest will work itself out. And so we're called to point people to that well as well. When we show in our lives, in this community, this life-giving water, we 
won't need to expend all of our energy on building fences, on setting up boundaries to determine who's in, who's out. You know, we don't have to have people agree with us on every doctrinal issue, every ritualistic practice, every, you know, theological point of eschatology or soteriology or all the big fancyologies that we study in, in, in seminary. None of that stuff is essential to following Jesus because all he's asking us is to follow him. And if you Anyway, so that's where, that's where we're at. And, and so this question moves away from who's inside these, this, this fence, these boundaries, and who's out, and toward who's moving toward the well. Whose trajectory is toward the well to drink of this? Who recognizes their need for Jesus? And who is moving away from that well and says, I don't need this. I can do it on my own. So like I said last week, this fall, I am hoping for us to dive into this, uh, this book and these, the, the, this material a little bit deeper. Um, uh, uh, the author goes through the book of Galatians, actually, and really kind of uses that as a, a bit of a blueprint. And so hopefully uh, we'll, we'll teach on that this summer or this fall. Um, but this morning, as we begin to kind of skim the surface of this centered set paradigm, as we begin to look at this as a sort of a paradigm that we as a community want to embrace and to practice, to embody, I want us to think about what are the characteristics of a center-set church or, you know, what does being centered on Jesus mean for us as individuals? Uh, Megan Good, who's one of the, uh, the sort of proponents of the Jesus Collective, a, a member of the Theology Circle, we've been drawing on her a lot throughout this series. She says, um, after going through all this stuff, all these you know, the, the stuff with her community talking about this. She says this, uh, at the end of the day, the question that we want to ask is, how can we hold our convictions? I think I have that up there too, John. How do we hold on to convictions in a center set paradigm? How do we hold on to those things? Which I think really gets at the heart of what we're wondering here. How do we hold to the beliefs uh, the values? H how do we hold to all of those rituals that we think are so important? Um, all of the things that we deem as critical to following Jesus without compromising, without judging those who think differently, who don't share in those same convictions, particularly as we try to embody this paradigm using boundaries or erasing boundaries. That's a pretty easy task. We've got about 10 minutes left, so it should be no problem to do that. Um, but for real, I do think that the New Testament has a lot to say about this. Recall that unity was the very thing that Jesus prayed for. Uh, knowing that without unity, the church, the very conduit for God's plan of reconciling all things, wouldn't work. So unity is an important part of this whole plan that Jesus had set out. So there's, as you would suspect then, there'd be a lot in the scriptures about that. And in fact, we find there is. Um, this morning, I'm going to go through three sort of points that I think uh, that Paul speaks about in uh, Ephesians, and we're going to explore sort of uh, these, these sort of fundamental characteristics or approach to how we ought to be followers of Jesus within a centered set paradigm who can confidently hold on to our convictions. So Ephesians 4 is where we're going we're gonna to be reading, and I invite you, if you have a Bible or a phone, go ahead and turn to there or just look up here because I put it all on the screen. Paul says, it says, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. 
Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Make an allowance for each other's faults because of your love. So to begin to answer this question of how we might hold our convictions in a centered set paradigm, we look at these first few verses of Ephesians and we heed Paul's instructions to the church at Ephesus as instructions to us in 2023. We conduct ourselves with humility, we show gentleness, we have patience, and then we undergird all of that with love. So step one in learning how to hold on to our convictions within a centered set paradigm, friends, is to practice these virtues of Jesus. First one, humility. Again, Megan says this. She says, um, God is on the throne, not you. Odds are slim that you've got everything exactly right. Is it possible to hold convictions firmly, but with the ability to see our limited view in history, that we are standing in a particular time, within a particular culture, that things are forming our vision that we just can't even see. What would happen if that were the perception that we held? So to start with this posture of humility while holding our convictions is to say we can hold our convictions with an open hand that we are not grasping them so firmly that we are not willing to be challenged or to have anything ever change because we recognize that we do not have omniscience. We do not have the God's eye view on things. We are very limited in our perceptions, very limited in the perspective from which we arrive and come from. I think one of the biggest problems with um, sort of religious discourse these days is this fundamental assumption that we can get God right. That because we have this Bible, we have unfiltered, unadulterated access to capital T truth. And it's really hard to be humble when we approach our faith this way. In fact, it actually diminishes and it erodes our faith altogether. Because certainty erodes faith. Certainty replaces faith. And you and I are called to faith, not certainty. We are called to trust. And humility, friends, is born from faith. And pride is born from certainty. Amen? Pride is born out of certainty. Humility is born out of trust recognizing that I could be wrong, recognizing that I, maybe I don't have the complete corner on all of this. So when we replace trust and faith with a conviction that can't be bumped, that can't be challenged, then we will have a hard time listening to Spirit's guidance and openness to learn and to grow. But then accompanying humility is gentleness. And she defines gentleness as power under control, which is a really interesting way to define gentleness, but it makes a lot of sense. I love it. That we can look to Jesus and again and again for his demonstration of this throughout the Gospels and his interactions with Pharisees. We see the God of the universe revealed in man control his omnipotence, his power. His power. 
over and over again. He shows integrity. He speaks truth, all the while inviting us on all sides of the line to follow him, to drink deep of that well. And so can we hold power, the power of knowledge, can we hold that power with gentleness? And then the, coupled with gentleness in Ephesians is patience. And I love that. Paul actually says patience, making allowance for each other's faults. Making allowance for each other's faults. So there's this assumption that all of us are going to have faults. None of us are going to get it right. Each other's faults implies all of us. We all got something screwed up in our theology and the way we think about God and these big questions. And of course that's true. And so Paul's just gently saying, listen, if you're going to have unity as a body of believers, you're going to have to make, make some room for each other's faults, which means don't correct. You don't need to correct them. <laughs> you don't need to constantly be that guy or girl who's always got to have the right answer at the right time and make sure everyone knows that you know the right things. You can just keep your mouth shut. There's a lot of wisdom in that. It took me a long, long time to learn. I'm still learning that. You can talk to Rhonda about that. But there's a lot of wisdom in keeping our mouths shut, isn't there? People who have been around are like, yeah, oh yeah, there is. And there are people who have teens who are like, oh yeah, oh yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um, but as followers of Jesus, there's so much truth in that. Like, listen, we, you know, patience is just recognizing, like, I don't need to correct you on everything. And, and it, this posture appreciates the person for what they can bring to the conversation without having to fix them. And then finally, there's love, which, you know, uh, love has to undergird all of those things. Love has to undergird our humility, our patience, our gentleness. It has to be the thing, the bedrock from which all of that stems from, because none of it can be authentic or real if love isn't there. So that's the first thing. The first way to hold convictions is through holding those convictions with humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Amen? But then the second way we learn to hold convictions is through recognizing posture over position. Recognizing posture over position. He, uh, this is verse 11 in chapter 4. So now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work, to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue. In other words, we haven't arrived yet. This will continue until all come to such unity and faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So again, we will all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge. That's eventually going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. We're working toward that. And Paul says the responsibilities of pastors, guys like me, teachers, is to help equip all of God's people to do this work, to build up the church, and that will continue until we all come to unity in our faith and our knowledge of the Son of God. But we have not yet become unified in our faith. Another translation says to be fully grown, measured to the standard of the fullness of Christ. So Paul is saying we are all moving at different rates. We are all moving at different speeds in our pursuit of following Jesus. 
Some of us have been following him our whole lives and have just a beautiful faith that you can stand back and be like, yeah, man, that is somebody I want to follow after. I want, to, I want, to, I want my life to look like that person's, and, and that's beautiful. And others are just discovering that now in their life, or others have been resisting that call of God on their life their whole lives, and maybe they still haven't responded. But all of us are moving to some degree, at some rate, toward this. Um, some moving toward the center, some moving toward this well. Others, maybe not. Uh, remember last week we talked about Holy Hal and Messed Up Mike. Uh, again, if you weren't here, you're going to have to tune into that. Um, but both of these were on a journey. And, you know, maybe they were pointed toward the center. Maybe they weren't. Um, and my takeaway from this uh, and again, I'm, I'm leaning on Megan, Megan's work here, is to ask if we can hold that tension of disagreeing with someone, be it a doctrinal matter, be it um, a lifestyle matter. Maybe they practice a different lifestyle than what we agree with. Whatever it might be, and yet we can recognize the journey that they're on. The rate of growth toward Jesus is different, but as long as it's in the same direction, friends, we are family. Amen. That's it. And so hold your convictions with this in mind. Elevate the other person's posture over their position. That's a challenge that we have as a centered set church. How can we promote, how can we recognize, again, outside of this continuum of bounded or fuzzy, how can we recognize this journey that they're on that maybe isn't aligned with me, that maybe they haven't come as far as I have, um, at least in this area, how can we see that and see and value them as a person, dialogue, and carry on. And when we can do that, we are able, I think, to better hold our convictions. And then the third and final way that we hold convictions is through having clarity about who is at the center. Clarity about who is at the center. Remember, those gathering at 3.30 p.m. on Saturday for soccer, they know why they're, why they're there, right? They are there to play soccer as a group, to have fun and play soccer. Anyone is welcome to play, but make no mistake that those who join them are not going to start playing rugby or not going to start playing volleyball. They're going to join in with, with the game of soccer because that's what their center is. They know their center. And so when someone picks up that ball and runs with it, that person is not pursuing the center of what they're there for, right? They are some other sport, but it ain't soccer. Ephesians says this in verse 14 of uh, chapter 4. He says, We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. So Jesus' followers are not supposed to be blown about by every wind of new teaching. In other words, we can't just start picking up the ball and running with it, feeling all willy-nilly like it doesn't matter. Doing that ignores the agreed-upon center. What is at the center here? Instead, Paul says we are to grow in every way, to be more and more like Jesus, and be more and more like Christ, the head of the church. That's the pursuit. That's the center. So Paul says that the thing that prevents us from being blown away, by, blown about by every wind, is speaking the truth in love and growing in every way to be like Christ. 
speaking the truth in love and growing in every way to be like Christ. We want Jesus to be at the center of our theology. We want Jesus to be at the center of how we read scripture. We want Jesus to be at the center of our ethic, of how we conduct ourselves in the world. We want Jesus to be at the center of our vision as a community, as, a, as grassroots church, uh, to be the center of our mission. We want Jesus to be the center of everything we say and do as followers of Jesus and as a grassroots church. He is the pursuit of what we're all about. He is the trajectory which I pray all of us are moving toward. But of course, this is easier said than done. And admittedly, a much larger conversation about who that Jesus is that we claim to have at the center is necessary for community. And so maybe a different way of framing this is to ask, what is being offered at the well that is so desperately desirable that we continue to come back to this well, to be drawn to it in such a way that fences just simply aren't required? How can we make this Jesus, this, this living well, so flippin' appealing that we don't even have to think about well, uh, fences? In other words, the answer for what is at the center is not Jesus, not just Jesus, as this sort of esoteric concept or this theological uh, position that's arrived at through a bunch of propositions we throw together. That's not what we care about at the center, right? Rather, it is Jesus himself. For me, as I read the scriptures, this, the, the, the picture of Jesus that, that is best represented is the story of the prodigal son. It is this son who is wayward, who got own way, who re- insists on sort of slapping his father in the face and, you know, goes and squanders all this money. And then day after day after day, his father sits there and waits for his son to return. And then when he sees him, he rushes down the lane, you know, like um, uh, hiking up his robe and just embraces his son, forgetting his past celebrating this new creation. Like that is the relentless love of God pursuing us. Amen? That is the picture of God that I want each of us as, a, as grassroots church to be picturing when we sing songs this morning, when we sing songs together as a church. You know, and the other way of saying this is like the culmination of the Gospels. The, the very... the. At the end of the day, what, is the, what do the Gospels point us to? It points to God hanging on a cross, right? Which is a radically different concept than any other religious system, any other ideology can offer. A God who sacrifices himself, who empties himself, the ultimate expression of self-sacrifice. Jesus does that. So stop making it a cliche. Stop making it like this, you know, whatever, it's a profound picture of who God is. And as Matt said during our singing time this morning, if we can understand God the Father through that picture of who Jesus is, we will all be doing a lot better as followers of Jesus. Because that Jesus you can get behind, I guarantee it. You can love that Jesus. That Jesus doesn't have any hang-ups. Or you don't have any hang-ups with that Jesus. I guarantee it. You know, that Jesus is welcoming, loving you. 
He is relentlessly pursuing us, each of us. And when, if, if that's the Jesus that's at the center, I guarantee you, I guarantee you we don't have to worry about fences, right? I guarantee you we don't have to worry about putting up boundaries to determine who's in and who's out because it won't matter. If we can present that Jesus to our world, friends, we're doing all right. And you know, like Matt said, I was chatting about some of this stuff last night with him. And you know, I was saying that it can be really tricky because we have all these different views of who Jesus is right? We have different understandings of what that center looks like. And Matt pushed back and he said, no, 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 that's not true. There might be different views, but there's only one that's right. You know, this, any Jesus that is not represented by this self-giving, you know, self-emptying Jesus on the cross is not the real Jesus, And to extend that metaphor of the well a little bit further, anything other than that Jesus, be it the Christian nationalist Jesus, the prosperity gospel Jesus, the white supremacist Jesus, um, the warrior Jesus, you know, the side-choosing Jesus, Jesus is on my side, he's for me, and that's it. Whatever other Jesus you're coming up with in your head, whatever other Jesus you have baggage that you got to deal with, that's not the Jesus of the cross. Those are muddy puddles or contaminated ponds or algae-infested swamps, and they're just not that appealing to the world. But the Jesus we put our trust in, this Jesus offers a spring of living water that runs deep, that is cold and refreshing, and that is never-ending, and you will not tire of drawing from that well. Amen? I hope so. And so I think that when we start with that Jesus as the center of what it means to be a centered-set church here at Grassroots Church, that Jesus, friends, is who I'm wanting us to put at our center. When we start there, all of the other stuff, all of our theology, our worldview, our ethic, how we treat one another in this world, all of it flows from that, but it starts there. It starts there. And so for grassroots, this is the Jesus that I want to be worshiping together as a community on Sunday mornings. Um, this is the Jesus that I want to be praying to when we gather to pray in our, as a group or as individuals, wherever we go throughout the week in our workplaces, all of that stuff. This is the God who liberates, who's longing for a relationship, who is not threatening me with hell, whose heart breaks over my unfaithfulness, and yet who eagerly waits day in and day out for my return. That's the Jesus that Grassroots Church wants to worship. But I get it. There's more to it than that for many of us. And you know, again, to the soccer analogy, with soccer, there are universal rules that are understood and agreed upon, and everyone can play soccer because of those rules. But the church does not have universally agreed upon rules about what the center is and what it looks like, let alone every believer in this room. In other words, understanding the God of the center is revealed through Jesus is not a one-and-done conversation. Yes, It's the crucified and the resurrected Lord that we start with and we work our way out from that. But the reality is we are all bringing our experiences, um, our hang-ups, our whatabouts, our our 
spiritual baggage, all of that to the theological table, all of that to the discussion of how we understand God and how we understand his son Jesus represented to us as God. And so it is not an easy task for us, and it's not going to be done in a single sermon, that's for sure. But this stuff matters, and how we think about God matters because we live out of our beliefs. Amen? We live out of our beliefs, so what we believe about God actually matters. It's just not pie-in-the-sky, esoteric, you know, concepts that are meant to be left in the ivory tower. No, we are to embody, we are to practice these beliefs, to confess these things because they inform how we live. And so forming our doctrine, our theology, the beliefs that we hold, the convictions we hold, that's an important thing. And you might say, oh, but Steve, I thought you said that's part of, you know, boundary lines. And, and this is what Baker says, the author of this book. He says, within a bounded church, you know, you'd be right. Doctrine or right thinking about God can degenerate to mostly just who's in, who's out thinking. But this is the role that doctrine, that strong conviction can play for those in a centered set. He says, a centered church frees doctrine to be much more than right belief. Doctrine, our convictions, become life-giving well water by helping people in the church align with and journey toward the center. In the drama of doctrine, Kevin Van Hooser says, doctrine gives direction as to how individuals in the church can participate fittingly in the drama of redemption. When understood in this way, we recognize that our theological beliefs are not only part of the content of the center, but also part of the foundation that enables centered discipleship. So doctrine is a pathway, is a tool that can be used for discipleship. In Grassroots Church, one of our core pillars is shaping bright disciples. Discipleship is a big part of what we as a ministry want to be about. And so we can use doctrine in that way, not as a coercive tool to be weaponized, but as a tool to help form disciples. So, quick summary. How do we hold our convictions? One, we practice the virtues of Jesus, of humility, of patience, gentleness, and love. Two, we elevate the other's posture over position. We have grace. We have what's called empathy toward the other. We recognize that we're all on this journey. None of us have arrived. None of us have figured it all out perfectly. We're all moving at a different rate, so go easy on one another. And three, we know who is at our center. Who is the Jesus at the center of Grassroots Church? Who is that center? And we've begun that conversation this morning. We've been talking about it for weeks now, actually. Um, it's the Jesus revealed on the cross, friends. And all of our doctrine, all of our thinking about God the Father stems from that. That's it. So I'm going to invite uh, Matt to come on up. And as we close, my hope is that as a community of followers of Jesus, we can present Jesus uh, to the world in such a beautiful and appealing way, such that people will orient themselves toward this well, coming back to drink from it often, over and over again, that you and I will come back to drink of this well often, recognizing that when we do, there's just no need for fences. It's a question that doesn't even matter. Amen.
So I invite you to stand. Um, this morning we are going to uh, move into communion at this point. I think I have a communion thing here. Um, but before I do that, let's just pray and ask God that he'll seal this message. He'll seal this, these ideas into our heads. Help us not to walk away from here. Father, I pray that we would not leave this morning and just think, well, that was a good message. But Lord, that you would stir in us a real conviction of how we can disagree in a more intentional, more God-honoring way that doesn't lead to division, that doesn't lead to separation or having to go your way or my way, that we can stay together as a family in spite of our differences because we've learned how to hold those convictions with an open hand, how to ha have a posture of humility, how to recognize that each of us are moving at a different rate, a different pace towards you. And Lord, that we understand who is at our center. It is Jesus, your son. God revealed through man the self-giving, self-sacrificing, self-emptying God of the universe, drawing us close to you. The father who sees, watches for his son day in and day out and then runs toward him with abandon when his son returns. That's the God who is at our center. Help us to have a conviction that starts there and moves out. And Father, as we gather around your table this morning, um, I just want to have your spirit speak to each of our hearts uh, to use these emblems, these tangible little symbols as just one more way to direct our hearts toward the crucified Christ the God revealed, the God who is at our center. Help that to be each of our prayer this morning as we take and eat of this bread and cup. Amen. So this morning, as uh, you come, uh, first of all, everyone is welcome to our table. Uh, you can take uh, the piece of bread and dip it in the cup. There's a gluten-free option over here to those who are gluten-free. Um, and uh, this morning, just, just, you know, sing a song with us, gather, or, uh, you know, wrap your head around this stuff and contemplate and consider, meditate on these ideas. Um, and I pray that, uh, yeah, I pray that this would be something that lands with us as a community moving forward. Um, so you're welcome to the table. Amen.